you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes You might find Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us every Monday at 10 a.m. on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. And at 10 a.m. is New York time, but we're totally global. So uh, <laughs> you have to check out what time it is in your part of the world. Remember, years ago, I was at a Buddhist conference in Bali in Indonesia, and uh, I would periodically make a phone call back to New York and <laughs> make it at 9 in the morning, and I'd reach New York at 9 p.m. at night. So it was exactly halfway around the world. So you might be anywhere. you got to figure out what 10 a.m. New York time is for you. And uh, so uh, you're probably listening to us on prn.fm, and then you can find dozens of our back shows online at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, as in Nancy.com. And today I thought I'd do a little bit of uh, freeform radio. And just to tell you how old I am, uh, back in the 1950s, the, the pioneer of freeform radio was this great figure, Gene Shepard. He's one of, you know, one of the all-time great radio figures. And you'll know him, uh, if you never heard his show, Actually, if you never heard a show, um, they're all, not all, but lots of them are online, and you can download them and uh, listen to, you know, podcasts. And somebody fortunately recorded some of them. But also, you'll know him from Christmas Story, Gene Shepard's A Christmas Story, that movie, about this little kid who gets a BB gun. So that little kid is a fictionalized uh, young Gene Shepard. One of the things he did a lot was to tell stories about his growing up in a Chicago suburb. And <clears throat> the movie uh, Christmas Story grows out of some of those stories. And then the other uh, great figure of uh, Freeform Talk Radio, late night radio, <laughs> I was my my school did not properly uh, account for the baby boom, and so we were on double session, and I was always on the morning session. So school would start, you know, like at eight thirty or eight o'clock or something like that, and then the afternoon session they'd start at one o'clock, and they'd all flunk out, you know, or you know do poorly <laughs> because. You know, they get home, they'd be tired, they don't want to do their homework, and they get up at 9 in the morning and, you know, they don't want to do homework in the morning. So, but anyway, um, so there I am trying to listen to John Nebel, who came on at midnight, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and then have to get up at 6 in the morning for school. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, Long John Nebel, one of his favorite guests was... And he's still around, the amazing Randy. And uh, Randy is a magician. And one of the things we know him for is debunking Ori Geller. So Ori Geller was the psychic who could bend spoons. And um, he had a huge following. But whenever he was on a show with Randy, he couldn't do his psychic stuff. Because Randy would know, you know, 
He said, it's uh, simple. Ori Gerald is a magician. I know how he's doing it. I can do it. Um, and another magician was Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was the Jay Leno, whoever it is today, of his day doing the uh, Tonight Show. And when he would have Ori Geller on, Ori Geller couldn't do his tricks. There would be things like mind reading, like um, uh, people beforehand would write, would put a little diagram on a piece of paper and put him papers in an envelope. And then uh, Johnny Carson would say, okay, what are the diagrams in the envelope? And Ori Geller would draw something, open the envelope. Sure enough. <laughs> and and uh, Johnny, Johnny Carson was also a magician. He would call up Randy, the amazing Randy, and he'd say, well, how does he do that? And amazing Randy would say, he has an assistant named so-and-so. Make sure he doesn't get anywhere near those envelopes. <laughs> And, you know, and then Randy couldn't do it. But anyway, the other thing Long John Neville did, which I aspire to do someday on this show, is he would interview people that had been kidnapped on flying saucers. So, you know, uh, and what does that remind you of? Who who does that? Uh, Who did that? Uh, And uh, what is it? Overnight uh, with Art Bell. So Art Bell, for many years, carried on this great tradition, you know, of uh, Long John Nebel. Um, and actually, later in his career, Long John Nebel uh, remarried, and uh, his new wife was his, also his radio partner, uh, Candy. So it was Long John Nebel and Candy. So after Long John Nebel died, I had the great honor of being interviewed by Candy when she had her own show for one of my books. But anyway, uh, so that's Freeform Radio, which we'll do a little of. Now, what I'm talking about today is creative thinking. And in his book, The Act of Creation, Arthur Kessler proposes a theory of creativity, which he calls bisociation, which is you have two totally unrelated trains of thought or categories of thought, and you bring them together, and they clash in some weird way and bring up something totally new. So that's his theory of creativity. And it not only applies to art and science, etc., but he also applies it to humor. And uh, I always appreciate that kind of humor. I'm not remembering it exactly, but, for example, there was a Peanuts cartoon in which I think it was Linus is uh, you have two tracks because it was a Sunday cartoon. They could have enough, uh, you know, enough frames to develop these two tracks. And in one of them, Linus is making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and something happens on it. The phone rings or something and the jelly gets all over his hands. And then in the meantime, um, Charlie Brown is doing something else. And then the two come together, and for some reason, you know, they shake hands. In the last frame, Charlie Brown is looking at his hands. You know, what's this sticky stuff? You know, they, they sort of clash together. Um, the one of the the it sort of argued what's the greatest uh, sitcom of all time? Seinfeld and I Love Lucy uh, are up there, but another really great one was Cheers. And Cheers was very good at running a couple of uh, sort of parallel plots, and then the two would clash, you know, and something really weird would happen because of these two plots coming together. So that's uh, that's Arthur Kessler's 
approach to creativity. So um, I'm going to go into that in a minute, but I got tempted by something else on the bus over here. As uh, listening to my um, my iPhone, and you know, I sort of flip between um, um, Progressive Radio Network, and so Gary was on before me this morning. That was cool, and uh, then some uh, National Public Radio. But then I've got several dozen books on my phone and hundreds on my computer. Don't want to clutter up my phone. But I thought I'd rattle through these books because what I want to talk about is bringing together some totally unrelated ideas. And I'll do that in, um, you know, more specifically. But just the kind of stuff I have on my phone right now. You might know the term future shock. So in 1970, Alvin Toffler published a book, Future Shock. And then uh, he's done a whole bunch of books. But... And he just died recently, a couple of years ago. But I actually never read Future Shock. <laughs> you know, it's a book everybody knows what it's about. Just You just hear the title. And, you know, it's how change is accelerating and everybody's freaking out. And, of course, 1970, nothing was happening in 1970. I mean, that's that's eight years before the home personal computer you know, that's when things really got started, when you had an Apple II. And um, that was eight years later. And today, you know, where you, your your iPhone is outdated every two years. I, I'm totally dedicated to Apple. Not, you know, I think Steve Jobs is cool and all that, but mostly because I don't want to learn something new. <laughs> I, I, my first computer, 1984, was a Macintosh. And... Um, so you know it was for you know it was advertised for the rest of us at that time uh there was no windows pcs had dos disk operating system operating system and and you needed a telephone book you know like if you're printing and you wanted something italic you'd you'd be typing along and then you'd go you know command com, command asterisk slash slash i and then type the word and that would come out in italics, and then command asterisk uh, backward slash backward slash p, and that would stop making it italic. Well, how the hell are you supposed to remember? You know, I'm, I'm Mac and today Windows, which just imitates Mac. You just go up to the 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 uh, to the bar and click the slanted i, and your next word will be italic. Uh, but it was a horror. So if you wanted to print, you know, you just go to menu and go to print. Well, that isn't how it works. So I got a Mac because I couldn't. I wasn't gonna, you know, work with a phone book. So, so, uh, uh, but anyway. So you know, then I got an iPhone, and but why can't you get a new battery for the thing? Cheese. Uh, my, my my wife has a had a Samsung, and a new battery was seven dollars. And I'm trying to buy, you know, not a fake Chinese one, but a real Samsung. Seven dollars on Amazon. You pop it open and pop in the new battery. On so my iPhone, finally the battery just won't hold a charge. So I bring it in, and they say, well, it's a hundred dollars for a new battery, but. We can give you, because your contract is up, we can give you a new phone free, and your contract will be $10 a month less. 
Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to get the new phone for $10 a month less and free rather than, you know, pay $100 to change the battery. Well, you know, anyway, so that's my complaint about Apple. You can't change the battery. So anyway, um, just looking at my iPhone here, I also like to keep books on my on my um, my little iPod, but uh, right now I got them on my phone. So I'm reading Revolutionary Wealth, which is Alvin Toffler's last book. Uh, Alvin and Heidi Toffler, he wrote his last books with his wife. And the book I did, I'm reading, not reading, listening to. Who can read anymore, right? I get in bed and I say, you know, I got like four books um, next to my bed that I'm supposed to be reading. I mean, and then <laughs> actually tomorrow I'm meeting my handyman to to try to empty half of my office. I just got a roommate in my office at school. So I have to get rid of half of my stuff. And I pay, this is embarrassing, $500 a month for a mini storage full of books. And this is after getting rid of thousands of, literally, um, I gave 3000 to the school library, and I take hundreds at a time to Strand to get rid of. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm finally demassing my books. But anyway, um, um, so, you know, am I going to read a book or watch a repeat of Big Bang Theory? <laughs> I end up watching a repeat of Big Bang Theory. But I can listen to books because I can do that, for example— on the uh, on the on the bus over here, so revolutionary wealth sort of continues what they covered in the third wave. That one I did read. That was a great book. To this day, I sometimes use that uh, in my classes. Then I'm reading uh, how to read literature like a professor. I love books like that because you know I like I like books about the structure of writing. One of the great books like that is. Um, is uh, Steven Pinker's The Sense of Style. You know, we uh, when I was in maybe first year college, uh, they reprinted, or actually did the first, they reprinted Strunk, they reprinted White, and it's called Strunk and White, Elements of Style. To this day, English professors recommend it. It's not that good. Uh, instead, you should read Zinzer on Writing Well. That's what I assign my students if we're talking about writing. And it's a, just a book about writing, which college students have to do. But since I'm a writer, I like to, you know, like read books about writing, how to, how to, how to write better, how, how, how is this craft accomplished. And <clears throat> so I have all these books like uh, great first sentences, great first paragraphs, great first chapters, uh, the only book you'll ever need on grammar, that kind of stuff, you know, like— where do you put the colon? Where do you put the semicolon? What kind of M dash do you use? Uh, that kind of stuff. Actually, I had to do all that because my uh, most recent book, uh, uh, Visionary Creativity, I self-published. So I had to do everything exactly. There was no editor. I did have a proofreader because I can't spell. Uh, but, you know, like how to do... Uh, when to do italics, when to, like, saw, you know, books are italicized. Chapters are in quotes. But what about songs? Uh, you know, the Beatles, or albums, the Beatles Abbey Road, uh, or a Beatles song or an album. Is that italicized or quotes? So I had to get all the, you know, the rule books 
uh, for that. So I love that kind of stuff. So I'm reading that book. And then, oh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, something I'll talk about today. So that's Chingam Trumper Rinpoche, who was the first Tibetan to come to the West uh, after the, uh, the destruction of uh, Tibet. And so he got here around 1960, I think. And he actually first went to England to, he wanted to bring Tibetan Buddhism to the West. So step one was to go to Oxford and study, Oxford or Cambridge, I'm not sure which, and study English on the level of poetry. Uh, so he had a master English. Then he came to the United States and he set up study centers, um, one in Vermont and then one in New York and then eventually Boulder, Colorado. And he... Uh, he set up a whole bunch of organizations, magazines, a book publisher, Shambhala book publisher, and actually I did two of my books. Um, so I studied with him, and so I'm rereading Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. It's a great title, you know, like, okay, I'm meditating, so therefore, you know, I get spiritual points. Well, if you're thinking in terms of points, that's, that's not spiritual. That's spiritual materialism. Oh, then a book just came. I haven't, uh, all of these I'm listening to, um, you know, at the same time. I get bored with one, I go into another one. One I haven't started yet, A Mind at Play. How, what's the title of this? How Claude, let me just open this up. Uh, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. So Claude Shannon, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard of him, now it's playing. I got to stop it. Um, so Claude Shannon is this really interesting figure. Where'd it go now? Now it's the first book. Hang on, let me stop that. Um, so Claude Shannon was an engineer at AT and T's Bell Labs, and Bell Labs is in um, um, a building in the West West Village, right on the Hudson River, on Bethune Street. It covers the whole block. And they abandoned it, moved their labs to New Jersey, and it became artist housing. So it's famous as artist housing. But it was there that the transistor was invented. And he wrote a paper on information theory, he was asking the question, how do we quantify how much information can get through two wires? Or today, you know, a fiber optic channel. What do we mean by information? How do we quantify and measure it? And he invented the notion that we measure it in bits. How many ones and zeros can you get through the wire? That's the amount of information. So information has nothing to do with content. Um, you know, a page of Shakespeare might be more valuable than a page of my notes uh, for this show, but they might have the same amount of information as measured in bits. But that was big enough. He just invented information theory. But then for his master's thesis, he did something else. And that was there's something called uh, uh, Aristotelian logic you know, like uh, all all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. And that gets formalized by George Boole in the 18th century as Boolean logic. So you can diagrammatically, you know, if A and B are true, then you get C. 
If A is true and B is not true, then you get D. If A and B are not true, etc. So with this logic structure, you could do certain things. And what Shannon did for his master's thesis, you know, he never got a PhD. For his master's thesis was he said, you know, you can do this with relay switches. That's called computers, <laughs> the whole computer revolution. Uh, or the relay switches are on or off, and they code this logic. Well, that's exactly what the vacuum tubes did in the first computers and what the transistors on a computer chip, of which they're now a billion or billions on a typical com- computer chip, do. They're switching on and off to do this Boolean logic, which is a notion worked out by Claude Shannon. So some of the other books I'm listening to... Um, oh, my God. So uh, every once in a while I go back to great novels. So I'm listening to uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which we know from uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Uh, It's sort of one of the bases for the movie. But then uh, just Conrad's writing is so incredible. I mean, I can just listen to the opening chapter describing Marlowe on the trawler on the Thames uh, telling the story which is the book, the story of, uh, you know, going upriver in Heart of Darkness. And then every once in a while, I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but I'll, I'll, the opening of She is just incredible. H. Ryder Haggard, She, the greatest adventure novel of all time. And you might know H. Ryder Haggard, Haggard for King Solomon's Mines, but in She, uh, they go off to Africa and in this, you know, hidden, dark continent in, the, in this mysterious, unpenetrated place, there's this beautiful, immortal woman <laughs> who is known as she and how they get involved with her. Uh, just incredible stuff. So a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, oh, another one. Uh, if you're interested in this stuff, I just read... Uh, Nick Bilton's American Kingpin. So Nick Bilton finds interesting young people are doing far out things. He wrote the first book on those uh, college, uh, you know, math geniuses that invented card counting. And then they make movies based on his books. He wrote the book, The Social Network, about Zuckerberg and Facebook, uh, on which the movie was made. So American Kingpin is about this guy who is, he was bright, you know, computer science student, and uh, (laughs) he gets into, let's create a website on the dark web where people, where, you know, you can get to anonymously. You can't get there anonymously with with, uh, a normal web browser. You have to use Tor, T-O-R, and you can buy and sell drugs. Uh, so he created that, and he was making tens of millions of dollars before he got finally got arrested. There's an article in the newspaper about a new one that's ten times bigger than his. So I don't remember if they all yeah they all just got arrested. So that's a great book about you know these why these wild characters. Anyway, uh, so that's some of what's on my on my phone, and. 
I thought I'd talk about, I'm kind of a book person, as you can tell, and I thought I'd talk about this idea of uh, by association, putting together unrelated ideas uh, as a form of uh, creative thinking and some examples of that that I've been up to. So, um, let's see, where do I have those? Um, hang on. Just going through my notes here. So, oh, years ago, I, uh, 19, when was it? 19, about, oh, 1970, 71, 72. Uh, <clears throat> two things happened at the same time. Uh, WBAI was broadcasting shows about Tibet and Chungam Trumpa Rinpoche. And so, you know, that's interesting stuff. And I had read um, Alexandra... What was her, Alexandra Neal? What was her name? Uh, uh, book, um, uh, Magic and Mystery in Tibet. And you know, Tibet was this mysterious place. Very, you know, like maybe uh, a total of a dozen Westerners had ever been there. Uh, uh, the, um, and, you know, very few, if any, Tibetans had ever come here. Uh, not that many Buddhists and uh, no Tibetan Buddhists. So he was the first. And so, you know, what's going on? So I'm hearing about this on BAI. And I don't know how, before the Internet, <laughs> but I figured out where how you get a hold of them. And I had been studying Tai, tai Chi with, um, with Qingming Chang. And so we found uh, um, Rinpoche's study center, and started studying with him and took these, you know, introductory and intermediate courses and stuff like that. And would go to meditation and go to his lectures. And it was in a loft building on 14th Street and 5th Avenue. Well, same time, somebody tells me about Joseph Campbell. And I had seen the place in those days was the A Street Bookstore. And it was this incredible bookstore. It was a paperback bookstore, and uh, it had moved by this time. It was on 8th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. And it was huge, and it was, you know, the other bookstore was Cody's in, uh, in Berkeley. But this was, I did all my scholarship there. I did, I did my master's thesis out of the, you know, out of the A Street bookstore. I did my research. I, you know, I didn't go to libraries. I went to A Street bookstore. Unfortunately, you had to buy the book. But that's partly why I'm still paying $500 a month uh, storage for my books that I'm trying to get rid of. Anyway, um, so... Joseph Campbell's books were there, and at the time was just finishing his four-volume series, Mass of God. So these books are accumulating, and it was like they, they were just impenetrable. I couldn't couldn't figure out which one to start with, uh, how to get into it, what they were about. By the way, um, uh, if you're thinking that, uh, the book is called Myths to Live By, and... <clears throat> It's based on a series of lectures that he gave at Cooper Union, and they're short. They're like, oh, 
uh, 15, 20 pages each uh, essay. And they're totally readable. And it'll get you right in. And then the other books are a bit more difficult. And the other way to get into it, if you're a video person, uh, is The Power of Myth, which is a series of, I think, about seven interviews of Campbell for by Bill Moyers for a public television. You get those as a video series. They might be some of them online. I'm not sure. Uh, they're not supposed to be, but someone might have put them up pirated on YouTube. And then you uh, they made a book out of that. So that's where you start. But anyway, I, I hear about Campbell's lecturing and in his wife's dance studio. His wife was a famous modern dancer, one of, one of uh, Martha Graham's students. So I start going. Turns out they're both in the same building, uh, Rinpoche's studio and Joseph Campbell's uh, uh, lectures. And so I go to one, I go to the other, and there's nobody going to both except me and my late wife. And I'm saying, you know, like to the Campbell people, hey, you're just upstairs. Is uh, Campbell's talking about Buddhism. There's a real Tibetan, you know, incarnated Lama <laughs> lecturing. You interested? And to the uh, to the Trump Rinpoche people, hello. There's you know Joseph Campbell is downstairs lecturing. Interested? Nobody. Uh, I'm I'm sure I'm the only one who went to both. Why does anybody figure that out? You know how why why can't people put uh, two ideas together? Well, um, there's a thought for you. Let's take a break, and um, I'll. Uh, uh, go through some more of this kind of uh, associative thinking. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Hello, this is Cordelia Gaffar. I'm the founder of Workout Around My Day and the Stressless Mom of Six. I have started the new Replenish Me radio show to help moms to have strategies to get through their day and to renew themselves throughout the day with little small self-care tips. And I'll be having interviews with self-love coaches, wellness coaches, just to help you. So join me Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and Replenish You. host of The Vinyl Experience, and you're listening to PRN, your source for the best in progressive conversation, news, and entertainment. We are PRN, 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 Progressive Radio Network. Stay tuned, tuned, tuned. 
I'm Glenn Ford. And I'm... You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Welcome back. This is Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. We're here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m., but it could be any time you're part of the world. you got to figure that out by... Uh, <laughs> you know, I just, and now you can at least go on Google, right, and, and get a say, what time is it in uh, St. Louis or something? And... Anyway, uh, and you can get our back shows anytime online at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N-I-S-N-A-N-C-E.com. Got a few dozen shows, and I have to confess, I love listening to myself. <laughs> so I like to listen to my, my back shows. Uh, and, you know, we've had lots of really great guests, so uh, next week we'll have another one. So... Uh, uh, you get to listen to more than just me. So what I'm talking about today is kind of by associative thinking. And this is an idea that is the basis of Arthur Kessler's book, The Act of Creation. And I should say, who is Arthur Kessler? An interesting figure. Uh, Arthur Kessler was a... Um, Hungarian-born British author and journalist, and major intellectual, died in uh, 1983. So he was, you know, during my, um, how to put it, intellectual coming of age. He was a he was a prominent figure, and as many people were in the 1930s, he was a communist in England, and then in the late 30s began the. Uh, Stalinist purges. So um, Russia, you know, began the gulags and the executions and and the people who would get purged would be, you know, the most loyal, dedicated communists, the Bolsheviks who had created the revolution. But it it was um, uh, Stalin, you know, um, solidifying his power and eliminating any potential source of opposition. And a lot of people remain loyal Stalinists uh, to the very end, to, you know, to this day. Uh, but a lot of people turned against communism. Andre Gide was one of them. And uh, Andre Gide is one of the figures who has an essay in a book called The God That Failed. And that was a series of prominent intellectuals uh, turning against uh, Soviet communism and writing these essays. Well, Kessler wrote a book called Darkness at Noon. And um, it's, it was uh, a thinly veiled, it doesn't name Stalin or the Soviet Union, but just a totalitarian dictatorship, but it's obvious what he's talking about. Uh, it's an anti-totalitarian work and made him internationally famous, uh, describes the uh, this uh, loyal party figure who had been part of the revolution, who's now, 
you know, going through a show trial where he has to confess his crimes and then and then be executed. Well, interestingly, Kessler uh, was a political figure, political essayist, commentator, but then toward the end of his life, say the last uh, 20 years, he writes a series of books that are uh, cultural and scientific in nature. One of them was, what's the name of that book? Um, let me think. Anyway, uh, the, one of his books is about <clears throat> the cosmology. And, you know, if we follow this kind of thing, we all know the story of uh, Copernicus, <clears throat> who removes the sun, uh, removes the Earth from the center of the solar system, puts the sun there. And uh, then there's this whole series. Copernicus still has circular orbits. So it doesn't quite line up to what they're really observing. And then we have Taco Brahe making very close observations. And then Kepler pointing out, aha, it's not our orbits aren't circular. They are elliptical. And then we get Isaac Newton's with uh, laws of motion and laws of gravity. And so, you know, there's these, all these steps where they worked it out. Well, Kessler does something very interesting, which is he shows that they didn't quite, that's not fair the way they tell that story. Because the story's told uh, knowing the answer. In other words, oh, this is what they got right and this is what they got wrong. Well, they didn't know, you know, if you do it contemporaneously, in other words, what did Copernicus really know and really say? Not let's ignore the party got wrong and talk about the party got partially right. And each step of the way, you get a totally different story. And actually, um, if you know this, uh, this point of view, you'll have seen it in Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And what Kuhn's uh, book, was an Interesting Happenstance, came out in the, in the mid-60s. And he had been, uh, he was a graduate student of theoretical physics. And he was retained by an organization that was, wanted to defend physics from the relativists. So, uh, the, how to put this, there's some physicists who want to claim that our theories describe the truth. They describe the way the universe is. Science describes true reality. There's only one thing wrong with that, <laughs> which is uh, how come science keeps changing? <laughs> you know, uh, Einstein totally overthrows Newton. Uh, or, you know, Newton totally overthrows Aristotle. Einstein totally overthrows Newton. So then they say, well, yeah, that's true, but it keeps getting closer to the truth. Uh, you know, and we'll probably soon get there to absolute truth. We'll have the theory of everything that's perfect. Uh, but we're getting closer and closer. And so uh, Kuhn was hired for to do a book in a series by this organization that had that point of view. And so he got his grant, and he starts doing his research, and he starts looking at what, what did Copernicus actually say? What did Taco Brahe actually write? What did um, Kepler actually write? 
What did Galileo actually write? What did Newton actually, what did, you know? And it turns out it's not this linear progress toward the truth. Um, But rather, they are engaged in shifting paradigms. What he said is, there's two kinds of science. There's ordinary science. Ordinary science is what most scientists are thinking about when they talk about science. These are people in lab coats, in laboratories, making measurements. And they uh, do, in fact, work toward greater and greater accuracy and greater and greater confirmation of a theory. But they always work within a model, a paradigm. And what they do is refine, confirm, and build on that model or paradigm. So, for example, Galileo's paradigm held that planets have to travel in orbits around the sun in circles because that's what makes them move. And it's the natural condition of a circle that things move. Circles naturally rotate. Uh, He didn't have momentum and gravity and inertia. Those are all developed later by Newton. So when you go from um, Galileo's model to Newton's model, you're not refining. the Newton doesn't refine Galileo's paradigm. He totally overthrows it. He says, you know, planets don't move because they're going in circles. First of all, they don't go in circles. They go in in, uh, ellipses. And second of all, they don't go constant speed. uh, Kepler has shown that, you know, they speed up as they come in close to the sun and slow down as they move away. And uh, there's actually, they're falling. You know, the planets are doing exactly the same thing that a cannonball does. Uh, it's just that they shoot the cannonball very energetically. So like a satellite, it keeps going, keeps missing the Earth, keeps going around. The Earth keeps missing the sun, keeps going around. Totally different model, totally different paradigm. But it's moving through space. Well, Einstein totally overthrows that. He says, there's no gravity. What is gravity? Some invisible hand that moves out and pulls something? No. The mass of the Earth or the mass of the sun distorts space and time. It curves it. So he gets curved space-time. So we get these totally different models. So uh, Thomas Kuhn introduces that idea, but it turns out that the people who read Thomas Kuhn, and they read it to this day, Thomas Kuhn is all the time uh, quoted by postmodern scholars who want to point out uh, <clears throat> the cultural, uh, the social construction of reality that science is socially constructed, um, refer to Thomas Kuhn. But uh, other people have that idea as well. Oswald Spengler presents that idea in Decline of the West. Ernst Cassirer presents that idea in Philosophy of Symbolic Forms. So I like to, you know, like I'll say, okay, Thomas Kuhn's idea. So I'll say, Thomas Kuhn, put that in, um, put that in Google, and then put in Ernst Cassirer. Has anybody put these two together? Because Ernst Cassirer had the whole thing 40 years earlier. Uh, and was able to go beyond science and put science in the context of culture and art, which Thomas Kuhn doesn't do. So, I mean, is anybody out there? I, I was, uh, another one is, 
uh, Marsha McLuhan, who I've talked about a couple times on this show. So McLuhan talks about uh, how media totally changes our uh, the way we think, uh, the way our consciousness is structured. And, okay, so, you know, people growing up in a print culture are going to think linear and logically, and people growing up in a TV culture are going to think holistically. I've gone to that in uh, some detail in previous shows. But um, McLuhan is showing how and these technologies work as extensions of our minds and our bodies. Or because they're extensions of our bodies, but also extend our perceptions as well. Okay. Well, who else thinks that way? This is fundamental to Maurice Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology. So Maurice uh, Merleau-Ponty is, shall we say, Jean-Paul Sartre's lesser-known partner. Uh, and so... Um, he was a phenomenologist, uh, uh, sort of his phenomenology paralleled Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism. He was the political editor of Jean-Paul Sartre's Le Tom Modern, Modern Times, the, his, um, his political uh, newspaper. And he has a notion of what we might call the body subject, that... Uh, this chair that I'm going to be sitting in is a chair because I perceive it as a chair. To an octopus, it wouldn't be a chair. <laughs> to a fly, it's a landing strip. Uh, you throw it into a, uh, into a, a, a giant uh, aquarium with an octopus, then it becomes a hiding place. Uh, octopus would not be sitting on it. But it's a chair because I perceive it as a chair, but I perceive it as a chair because of my body. I've got a butt. I can bend at the waist. Uh, it works for me to sit in. Uh, if I had uh, a mind, but I was in a computer, uh, or I was, you know, a super intelligent octopus, this would not be a chair. It would, you know, it would be black and it would be angular, but it wouldn't be a chair. Because a chair is something you can sit in, and you can only sit in it if you have a body that sits in a chair. McLuhan's point is that these technologies change our bodies and therefore change distance. Once you have a telegraph, England isn't so far away. <laughs> New York to London was six weeks um, by the fastest possible communication. Once you have a tele telegraph, it's six seconds. <laughs> that changes the world. <laughs> that changes distance. Uh, you know, getting from... Uh, there's this book um, on Biography of Adams by McCullough. Beautiful book. And uh, it was made into a really great TV miniseries. And the book opens with Adams and his manservant and two horses going from Boston to Philadelphia to attend the Continental Congress. And it was winter. And they didn't want to ride the horses because the ground was slippery and they could fall and the horse could break a leg. So they're walking. Why about that? But that was the fastest you could get from Boston to Philadelphia. Was walking with your horse, <laughs> and sometimes riding it if the ground wasn't too frozen, on the Boston Post Road Route One. <laughs> uh, 
I'm sorry, they weren't going to Washington. They were going Boston to Philadelphia. Washington didn't exist yet. They were going from Boston to Philadelphia. Well, I occasionally go to Philadelphia. <laughs> I, I take the mega bus. <laughs> it's $5. <laughs> it takes 90 minutes. Zip. I don't even get through the, the New York Times. So, I mean, that changes the world. It changes your body. It changes your experience of reality. So, I read McLuhan and said, you know, and I said, wow, this is fantastic. And then uh, I had already read Merleau-Ponty. So I said, wow, you put these two together. Does anybody put them together? Uh, to me, they are, they are the foundation of all contemporary thought, these two together. So, you know, fortunately we have Google. So I put it in there. Some young PhD student has written a thesis putting the two of them together. But that's the only one I know other than my thesis uh, from 1967. But to, to me, creativity is putting this stuff together. So uh, in, a, in a recent show, you might recall, we had excerpts of a lecture by Neil Gershenfeld, and he might have caught it online. If not, you can see the lecture on YouTube. It, it, there isn't too much visual. Most of it is him talking. But uh, look up Neil Gershenfeld and, um, um, on YouTube, G-E-R-S-H-E-N-F-E-L-D, N-E-I-L. And mind-blowing stuff. He developed something called a fab lab. Um, the idea being uh, you're in Africa, you need a bicycle, uh, you could build a bicycle manufacturing factory. And you have to train people to work and create a supply chain and uh, get raw materials and build a transportation system, get the raw materials. Or you could just 3D print a bicycle. <laughs> Does that change the world or what? But he's thinking of the 3D printing as on a molecular level, which changes computing, changes fabrication, changes thought, changes everything. Well, okay. Um, we looked at that, these ideas in a little bit. You can go back and listen to that back show. But then, what's the theory behind that? Well, you want to read A New Kind of Science by Stephen Wolfram. Mind-blowing book. He says, Galilei and Newton made a mistake when they thought they could describe the um, the nature through uh, differential calculus, because really nature works more by rule sets like software. So if you look at the branches of a tree, the pattern of the branches of a tree are similar to the twigs, are similar to the veins in the leaves, because a tree only has one set of rules that it keeps reusing, or mountains, or rocks. These are you know you find these fractal similarities because of the rules they're using. And he uh, explores this through uh, cellular automata, one-dimensional cellular automata. Uh, so that's a new kind of science. Then look up Edward Fredkin. Edward Fredkin shows that the whole universe is a computer. And he's very controversial because he doesn't say it works like a computer. He says it is a computer. And uh, he calls it digital physics. He invented something called reversible computing, which is 
probably the most revolutionary thing in modern computing because computers make heat. And uh, the more intensive the computing, you know, like if you're watching video, you might notice your laptop gets really hot because it's doing a lot of computing. Well, it makes the heat because at every step in the computational process, it throws away all the work it's done to reset, to then redo the computation. And it does that a gazillion times a second. And But in reversible computing, the computer goes through what it does and brings itself back to its original position. It doesn't have to throw anything away. There's no waste heat. It computes with no energy, which is like second law of thermodynamics says it shouldn't happen. Well, if you're going to make molecular-sized computers the size of blood cells that are supercomputers, they better do reversible computing or you'll set yourself on fire if they're inside of you. So that's Fredkin. And then Rudy Rucker, uh, Lifebox, the shell and the soul, uh, applying this kind of um, thinking to mathematics. Seth Lloyd, a um, a um, quantum physicist at MIT, wrote a book called Programming the Universe. The universe is a giant computer, and he's going to reprogram it. <laughs> and then a cool book called Hacking Matter. You can actually reprogram atoms. Uh, and then, you know, this begins, of course, our whole understanding of this begins with uh, DNA, and so you want to read DNA, The Secret of Life, by Watson, of Watson and Crick. It's the best sort of summary of where we stand in our understanding of DNA. So, um, you know, start putting these books together, these ideas together, in totally unconventional ways, um, in ways that other people had not been thinking about. Um, in um, thinking about art. So uh, there's a book by Merce Peckham, Man's Rage for Chaos, who shows that art comes from discontinuities, things we don't expect. And then we find that uh, same idea in the psychoanalysis of artistic vision and hearing by Antoine Ehrenzweig. And then in Thomas Kuhn's Structure Scientific Revolutions, which I mentioned before, he talks about these paradigms and paradigm shifts, but he can't figure out where they came from. Well, they come from these discontinuities, which you find in Man's Rage for Chaos. Nobody ever puts this together, except me and my thesis. You find my thesis on, uh, my master's thesis on johnlabelle.com uh, under, I guess, uh, I don't know, you'll find it. Uh, so there are all these uh, all these interesting books that and ideas that we can uh, explore, find, dig into in uh, through the fantastic tool of uh, through the fantastic tool of Google, and uh, some of these books are actually on audio, <laughs> so people like me can read them in the bus. The other books. Uh, I read when I was young and could still read. <laughs> God, read a book from cover to cover. I don't know. Maybe we'll do a call-in sometime on uh, who's read a book from cover to cover. So listen, we're wrapping up now. 
This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're on every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. Could be any time you're part of the world. And we're on Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. And you can catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. See you next week.